October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode number 22, the 70s. Last time, we talked about James White's stroke just after he was elected General Conference President for the first time, and we looked at the years of painful recovery that followed. Everyone else in the church had to step up and manage the review in the Western Health Reform Institute, which was just getting off of the ground. At the end of the episode, you'll recall that James White was elected for a second term as General Conference President in 1869. And that leads us to the 70s. Before we jump into the 1870s, we have to talk about that fantastic moment in American history we'll call the California Gold Rush. The rush took off, really, in 1851, which is when a businessman in Rochester asked John Loughborough if he wanted to head to California and hunt for gold. Now, this was before Loughborough was an Adventist, but he declined nonetheless. Loughborough had some pretty good reasons to hesitate about going off to California to try to strike it rich. First, he was about to marry his wife, and a California honeymoon wasn't as glamorous then as it perhaps is now. And second, there was a huge risk involved. And that's why Loughborough needed to be sponsored to go in the first place. It didn't take long for eagle-nosed business people to realize it was easier to make money off of the miners than it was to mine gold themselves. But above all was the sheer cost and danger of getting there. You'd typically hop on a train to Iowa or Missouri, then buy a wagon and a pair of oxen and follow other travelers on a three- to five-month trip. It would set you back around $400, which was enough money to buy a modest house in a small town. If the Indians or starvation didn't kill you on the way, chances are you'd catch a disease. But you already knew that because we've all played Oregon Trail. So yeah, Loughborough said, I'm doing just fine out here. But there was another Avenist who was intrigued, and he headed west in 1859. Now 1859 is a good 10 years since the gold rush started, and that's because Avenists are always late to catch on. And when James White was first pushing the church to organize, Merritt Kellogg was looking west. Merritt Kellogg was one of J.P. Kellogg's sons. J.P., you'll recall, was one of the first Adventists in Battle Creek, and he helped settle James and Ellen White there. Merritt was therefore the half-brother of John Harvey Kellogg and William Keith Kellogg, and if you're having a hard time keeping up with the Kelloggs, then fear not. Pretty soon, you'll really only have to remember one of them. We don't know a lot about Merritt's epic journey west, except that it apparently involved Indians, quicksand, poisonous snakes, wolves, cyclones, grizzly bears, food shortages, and sickness. So, you know, not so bad. The funny part is that Merritt wanted to mine gold in Colorado, not California. But this rough start convinced him to head even further west. And in San Francisco, Merritt got a job as a carpenter, which paid a whopping $10 a day. James White was in charge of an entire publishing enterprise, and he didn't even make that in a week. Merritt managed to convert a former gold miner, who had made, and then lost, of course, $100,000. Together, they baptized 14 people in 1861. The Adventist Church in California was born. 
From then on, Merritt kept asking for help. He even sent gold back to the General Conference to pay for a preacher to help out in California. And no one came. But the General Conference did keep the gold, however. In 1868, someone answered the call. After having the same dream 20 times, John Loughborough finally got the message, I should go to California. The church considered him their first missionary, because that's how far away California seemed. John took the easier road to California, though, and by road I mean ship. The ship journey was longer, covering about 6,000 miles, and it didn't have quicksand, snakes, Indians, or bears. Well, at least you'd hope not. The cost wasn't cheap, however. It would roughly be about $10,000 today, so maybe the snakes and quicksand and Indians were worth the trouble. When the General Conference of 1868 decided to send Loughborough West, they put a notice in the review for people to donate to the cause. A newspaper in New York saw this, somehow, and reprinted it. Then a small group of Christians in California read that and got excited that a preacher was coming. They prayed that if Loughborough was really sent by God, he wouldn't die on the trip. And really, I think Christians need to pray that prayer more often. That certainly tells you about how people viewed the trip west. In California, it never stopped to be interesting. A man named Abram LaRue was baptized by our missionaries, and he wanted to be sent as the church's first missionary to China, really the first missionary anywhere outside of America. LaRue was up there in years, to put it nicely, and in any case, the church said no. So naturally, LaRue went anyway. A man named William Hunt was baptized and bought every book and tract Loughborough had on him, and then left for New Zealand and eventually South Africa to find some diamonds. It would be another 30 years before the General Conference could send missionaries to help Hunt in South Africa. But this is the kind of stuff that kept happening in California. Stirred by all the action, even James and Ellen had to come out in 1872 to see what was going on. But we'll get to that in a minute. The 1870s proved to be one of the most fertile decades in the young church's history. It was the decade where many of the biggest names in the church came of age. And I'm sure you can guess that it wasn't easy. Back on the Eastern Front, one of the big challenges was the Western Health Reform Institute. The Institute had tried to grow too fast, too quickly, just as Ellen White had feared. And, let's be real about it, it was done in a very churchy kind of way. And by that I mean most everyone on staff were self-taught doctors and nurses. None of them had any experience managing large institutions. I'm being a little unfair, just so you know, because this was before standardized medical training, so a lot of doctors were self-taught, or they followed one or another school of doing medicine. But still, the staff were undertrained and inexperienced. As a result, the Institute was in deep debt. It seemed like an answer to prayer when Dr. Russell Trawl joined forces with the Institute. Trawl wasn't an Adventist, mind you, but he seemed to fit in perfectly. Troll had been influenced by Sylvester Graham's common-sense approach to health, just like Seventh-day Adventists had. But Troll was pretty famous in the medical community as one of its most outspoken reformers. He railed against the use of quinine and mercury in medicine, he lectured at the Smithsonian, he was a vegetarian, and best of all, 
He had his own health magazine with a sizable subscriber base, which he offered to merge with the Adventist health magazine. This solved so many problems for Dr. Lay and his beleaguered staff. Except it didn't. Adventists came to realize that Trawls' articles were a little too extreme for them. For instance, he said people shouldn't eat salt, sugar, milk, butter, or eggs. And with that, Adventists started canceling their subscriptions. So the Institute is in debt and needs a crisis manager to turn it around. Who are you going to call? James White. Duh. He's the fixer. So in 1871, James was appointed president of the board of directors. Dr. Lay left for private practice, and J.P. Kellogg, Merritt's dad, was also put on the board to help turn it around. And speaking of Merritt, he was back from California. He had done some medical courses, and James wanted him to take over the institute. But Merritt knew that he wasn't qualified, and he and James agreed to take James's two sons, Edson and Willie, along with Merritt's little brother, John Harvey Kellogg. John Harvey was actually in school to be a teacher, but James managed to persuade him to go to Dr. Troll's Hygiotherapeutic College. It just sounds like the lair of an evil villain. Edson and Willie didn't take to medicine, but oh boy, John Harvey Kellogg did. Everyone could see the light in this young man's eyes. He had a touch of genius, and he had just found the field he was going to make his mark in. In 1872, John Harvey Kellogg was going to be a teacher, but by 1876, he had been given diverse medical training from the University of Michigan to Bellevue Hospital Medical School in New York City and hired as a chief physician of the Western Health Reform Institute. James White did everything he could to pay for John Harvey's school, he had employed him in the 1860s in the review office, so Kellogg had experience editing the Institute's paper called the Health Reformer. And speaking of the paper, Kellogg renamed it Good Health. And speaking of the Institute, Kellogg renamed that the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And, by the way, he was only 23 years old. But this movement had already proven that bright, hard-working kids could do anything and Kellogg remained in charge of the Battle Creek Sanitarium for the next 67 years. You couldn't take it from him if you tried, and trust me, people tried. One of the first things Kellogg did was kick Dr. Russell Troll out. Butter was saved. The interesting thing James White did in educating Kellogg was to give him a wide variety of training. He sent him to Troll's place first, of course, to get experience in alternative medicine, but the University of Michigan and Bellevue Medical College were both firmly in the grip of the American Medical Association, which represented mainstream medical thought. Bellevue received a huge donation from Andrew Carnegie in the 1880s and is now the New York University School of Medicine. Even though Adventists borrowed a lot from alternative medical ideas, James had the broad-mindedness to train Kellogg in both traditional and alternative medicine. This move ensured that the sanitarium would survive because places of experimental medicine, like Trawls Hydrotherapy Institute, would soon close. But not so the sanitarium. It would rise become the most famous hospital in the United States under the brilliant watch of John Harvey Kellogg. At that moment, in 1876, Kellogg was far from a sure bet. 
The sanitarium had 20 patients, and six left when the doctor that Kellogg replaced was fired. After two patients took one look at the 23-year-old who would be their doctor, they said, does your mom know you're here? And they left too. So Kellogg took over, and 40% of his patients left. But in a few months, he had gotten them all back. No sweat. If Seventh-day Adventists are known for their hospitals, they're also known for their schools, which also got their start in the 1870s. Of course, Adventists worked in the flow of American society, which, as with health, also had strident voices calling for reform of the educational system. And reform is a strong word, because in the early 1800s, America barely had any schools to reform. There wasn't much there. No one did more than Horace Mann to sell the idea that everyone in America should be able to get a non-religious, free education. The goal was not just to teach history and math and those sort of things, but to teach people how to be good and virtuous citizens. Do we really need to say why this was a revolutionary idea? Eh, let's do it anyway. Up until this point, schools were often run by churches, and the quality of those schools differed wildly. The classical schools taught Latin and Greek, while others focused mostly or even exclusively on the Bible. And people like Mann pushed for educational reform because only wealthy white families could afford to send their kids to school for long periods of time, long periods of time that students needed. Poor people often did some version of homeschool or perhaps a one-room building with several families in town coming together. Children in the country barely went to school because they were needed around the farm. As the Industrial Revolution revved up in the cities, many kids there were heading to work in factories rather than going off to school. The problem was that even if kids did go to school, it was only a few months out of the year or else they quit at some point because their mom got sick. Ellen White, after all, only had three grades worth of school before she quit because she got a rock thrown in her face. Yeah. You're going to have to go back and listen to episode 7 again. Ellen White's story was common. Well, except for the rock part. The first Adventist attempt at a school was actually by John Byington's wife way back in 1853. Martha Byington taught the kids of five families in the area, but then the school closed down after three years. Kids grow up. Schools close down. A few years later, James White grew nervous about public schools after learning that some of the kids were often unsupervised and picked up, shall we say, bad habits from other kids. Even though public schools were to be secular, they were still supposed to be places where good values were taught. James began planting seeds about Adventist schools, but the first efforts all failed. Even John Byington tried to open a school in Battle Creek, but it was incredibly hard to make a school successful. As Adventists focused on organizing the church and then on health reform, education received little attention. The reason is obvious. It was the responsibility of parents to educate their kids. In 1868, while James was recovering from his stroke, Goodloe Harper Bell had started a small school in the old Review Building in Battle Creek. Two of his students, by the way, were John Harvey Kellogg and his brother, William Keith Kellogg. Bell made it work where others failed. Bell had been a public school teacher in Michigan for 15 years, and his experience brought stability. And here's an interesting historical side note. Bell's sister is the great-grandmother of actor Burt Reynolds, 
Small world, huh? Good old Goodlow Harper Bell did rock a serious beard that almost went down to his stomach. It was fierce, man. Check him out. Anyway, Bell's school in Battle Creek was successful, and success got James White's attention. Maybe this was a good idea, after all. So James and the church promptly did nothing for three years. But in 1872, the General Conference officially took the school over, and the first official Seventh-day Adventist school was born in Battle Creek. Ellen White wrote an essay on education around this time, where she argued that education shouldn't just focus on facts, but on character as well. This was definitely in line with what Horace Mann and many other reformers were advocating, but with an Adventist focus. Ellen White did not think the Bible should be the only textbook. The Bible should be taught, she said, but students should learn about their world. It is, she wrote, the nicest work ever assumed by men and women to deal with youthful minds. When the Battle Creek School became Battle Creek College just a few years later, Ellen White had a clearer vision of what Adventist education should look like. As with health reform, it borrowed from reform-minded people who had gone before, but it would have that Adventist flavor. But that's a story for next time. As we said earlier, James and Ellen headed for this magical land of California in 1872, a few weeks after the General Conference adopted the Battle Creek School as its first official Adventist school. James White had resigned his second stint as General Conference president due to poor health yet again. James had come to embrace health reform. He ate his vegetables, at least. But when it came to being a workaholic, he just couldn't stop. Uriah Smith had the same tendencies, and Ellen White wrote to him to, quote, protest against such suicide, end quote. George Ida Butler took his place as General Conference president, and I told you that Butler guy would be going places. James and Ellen headed out on June 23, 1872. Ellen wrote that she expected to be in California the next weekend. How, you might wonder, could Ellen White expect to be in California in a week when it took Merritt Kellogg five months to get there? Ah, the wonders of technology. In 1869, the first transcontinental railroad had been completed, and that's how the Whites could be in California in a week rather than five months. Except they didn't make it to California, at least not right away. They stopped along the way to see family and friends, and when they got to Denver, they were persuaded to stay even longer in a cabin in the mountains. James and Ellen reveled in the mountains of Colorado. They loved the pure, clean air. They loved the nature. It was unlike anything they had seen in the east. Ellen even admitted that she stayed up almost until midnight, hiking up and down the mountains. And the next morning, she was up at five, doing the exact same thing. Often, James and Ellen would stay outside until dinner time. The only downside of all this was that Ellen White was thrown off a pony and got the wind knocked out of her. She got over it quickly, but even 40 years later, she still had chronic pain as a result of the fall. One doctor claimed she had a slightly torn ligament, and because there was no doctor around back then, it had never healed properly. In late September, they finally made it to California. And if Colorado refreshed their health, California inspired James White to do what he does best, create. James was a good manager, but he was an even better innovator. He built institutions. 
and he knew he was going to build things in California. The Whites wintered down in California, organizing the California Conference of Seventh-day Adventists in the process. And we're going to leave them there for now. Those were the beginnings of the 1870s for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Fixed to the Health Institute, got the educational stuff going, and then a few years, it would get upgraded into a college. James and Ellen found peace. So yeah, let's leave it there. Groovy. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.